Are you ready? Are you shitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 45 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have a great episode today, beginning with the doc, and then we talk about one of my absolute favorite topics, prenups. That's right. On today's episode, the 45th episode of the Shine On Podcast, we talk all about prenuptial agreements. Coming up, I sit down with LSU law professor Elizabeth Carter, who has written several articles on prenuptial agreements. And she was recently quoted in the New Yorker article, Why Prenups Aren't Just for the Wealthy Anymore. Together, Professor Carter and I dive into the topic of prenups. We get her thoughts and I give you mine. We talk with Elizabeth and why she strongly recommends that you have a prenuptial agreement and the benefits of having an agreement in place before marriage. We answer the question on everyone's mind who is thinking about a prenup. How do you approach having the dreaded prenup conversation and why the time is now once and for all that we finally put the notion that prenups are just for the wealthy to bed and producer Dave, before we get into the shine on podcast featured guest segment, I know you have an incredible docket lined up today. Yeah, we've got some news clips from celebrities talking about divorce and we're going to get your thoughts on them. So a jam packed docket today, sir. And Dave, how about episode 45? I mean, I feel like we should be celebrating, <laughs> taking out the bubbly, the cake. Yeah, what the 45 has got to be the the copper anniversary or something. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty big one. And uh, the magical number 50 just on the horizon. I'm excited. Dave, your gift is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Evan, as promised, the docket is gift wrapped and ready for you to open. Should we do it, sir? Dave, let's get into it. All right. Now, let's see what's on the docket. So as promised, a collection of news clips, celebrities talking about their divorce or talking about divorce in general. Here's f- former 1970s actress Valerie Bertinelli talking about her divorce. Let's take a listen. Item one. Looking on your Instagram, and I like that you're very honest, and you're like, "Divorce Sometimes sucks." Too honest. Divorce sucks. That's what you wrote. Those... It does, but it does. it does. What what sucked about it? Because well, you never go into marriage thinking you're going to get a divorce. Yeah. You know, you always think yeah. this is going to, you know, last forever. This is it. Yeah. And here I am, you know, <laughs> twice divorced. So I don't know everything. You know, it sucks. It it sucks because, you know, it's hard to not have a person in your life that you thought you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. Yeah. You know what's great about you? And it started when you walked out here and you you got tears in your eyes. Sometimes when life gets tough, people get hard. They become concrete. Their heart is rock hard and nothing's going to hurt them again. Mm -hmm. No, not you, not Mm -hmm. you. I'm not letting... You don't have that. Because I, I feel like, I mean, I am going to be more than happy to be happily divorced and spend the rest of my life alone. Yeah. I'm, I'll be happy that way. Well, with my six cats and my dog and <laughs> my son and hopefully one day grandchildren. Yeah. So You don't think you'll look for love? Oh, God, no. 
Really? Ugh. Why such a hard, fast no? Because of the challenges that I'm going through right now, because yeah. divorce sucks, yeah. I can't imagine ever trusting anyone again to let into my life. Mm. So I, I have some trust issues that I, yeah. I'm sure I'm going to have to get past. But can I just do something real quick? So there it is. And Evan, there go my hopes for marrying Valerie Bertinelli. So I guess I got to cross her off my list. But your thought, your thought, your <laughs> Your thoughts on Dude, her? I got to ask you. Yeah. What, what, what was it for you? The six cats and uh, two dogs? No, <laughs> no. It was, well, yeah, that's one issue. But no, she said, she said, God, no, she's not going to let anybody else in her life. Maybe I can change your mind. But obviously, a rough divorce that it seems like it's going to hang with her for the rest of her life. Your thoughts on what she said? I mean, and Dave, you're absolutely right. It's a rough divorce. And, and here's the thing: you want honesty. Valerie Bertinelli gives it to you in that clip. You want transparency. Valerie Bertinelli gives it to you right there. You want permission to say divorce sucks. It's hard. Listen to Valerie Bertinelli and this clip on the Today Show. And look, we hear so much about divorce and the positives and how you can live your best life on the other side. How can you find love again? We hear so much about life after divorce, but let's take a moment to pause and give yourself permission to feel how you're feeling in the moment. Look, I see clients that are absolutely worst in the thick of the divorce process, in the thick of litigation, and deep in a high-conflict battle. It can be grueling emotionally and financially. Divorce is a full-time job, and it can be extraordinarily hard to go through. People are going through it often at the lowest of lows, processing loss, processing grief, processing sadness, processing the shock. And so, Dave, let me ask you as someone who went through the process, I know you've talked about how your divorce was relatively amicable. Was it hard for you to think about life after divorce when the process was just beginning or you're in the middle of it? And I'm sure people said to you, look, better days, they're ahead. Yeah, and it's hard to see those days sometimes. It just is because it, it you know, every uh, divorce, as you mentioned, is a multi, multi-step process. And so when you're just beginning, you're daunted by all those steps ahead. And even if you know you're doing the right thing, which which I did, it's it's hard to be happy in that moment. So, but the the best thing advice I got from people is that let yourself feel sad, let yourself feel a little broken. It's okay as long as you, it, so. I took solace in the fact that it's normal, you know. And luckily, you know, I had people that around me, as you always recommend, to help me, friends, and you know, I was in therapy, lawyers. You count on your support system, and eventually you get through it. And even Valerie Bertinelli will as well, I think. Six six cats and a dog. Two dogs. <laughs> I know. Maybe I should have gotten some cats. All right. We move on to item two. Item two. This is a clip from the TV show The View, and it concerns the divorce about uh, Anna actress Anna Faris's divorce and The View people talking about it, you'll hear, you will hear Whoopi Goldberg first. Here she is. On her podcast, Anna Faris says she's unqualified. That's the name of the podcast. The mom star admitted that when she was, you know, married to Chris Pratt, she wished she had a closer group of friends she could have confided in about the relationship and those kinds of issues. Sarah, do you think that's a good idea? Should people confide, confide in their friends about details of their marriage? 
Well, if there's an issue that's super raw and unresolved, I tend to leave that kind of in the sanctity of the marriage. There's only one friend, my best friend Aaron, that I would trust with some of those things. But the day-to-day issues of marriage, I think it very much helps to get that out in the open and discuss, especially in this day and age of social media, because we all project our worst fears that nobody else is dealing with these things, whatever your your journey is. And I think when you normalize Relationships are hard. Marriage is hard. And other people have things, too. It, it puts your struggles in context and allows you kind of to roll with it better. It's the voice of Sarah Haynes, one of the, the View commentators, of course. And your thoughts on these comments, Evan, and, and the divorce of Anna Faris and what she said. Dave, I think it's a fascinating question. Should people confide in their friends about what's happening in their marriage and really in their personal life? And, and the, the jury is mixed with different thoughts and opinions. Some thoughts, if you listen to the full clip, are share, be open, share the daily struggles with friends so you know that you're not alone and other people are going through life's ups and downs as well. Other thoughts are go to your spouse and only your spouse and really keep it between the two of you. And yes, it may help to share things and to know that a relationship and marital struggles may be common, but I would also focus on the importance of making sure the friends that you're confiding in are able to offer real support, as we hear talked about in the clip, be careful what you share. And I think, you know, I'll pose a, you know, a question, Dave, to you and, and something to consider, which is, let's say you stay married. Let's say you stay in the relationship, but you're, you're confiding to friends about the issues or, you know, with your spouse or with your partner, and you stay together. And then you find yourself where, in a social setting where everybody's interacting I would think that might make for an uncomfortable moment or two if you actually stay married as opposed to getting divorced, what your friend who you confide in may think about your spouse. Yeah, absolutely right. I think that might be the more interesting question because once you get divorced, it's I think it's okay to talk to multiple friends about it because the the more you talk to, the better chance you have you'll find someone who is, as you say, really supportive. But but before you get married, yeah, I be careful about that because you know even your best friends will talk and chit chat and all that so the you know you don't want sort of this this cloud hanging over your marriage and then right when you're at like a dinner party and you realize you've told the person across the table from you that your wife and you had a big blowout fight the night before and how it changes that dynamic so a lot of things you want to leave probably to a small circle of friends and your therapist, most likely, right? I mean, I'm envisioning a scenario where you're confiding in your friend that your partner or spouse has had, let's say, a, a long affair, and, 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 and now you've worked through it. And right. then you're sitting down to have a steak dinner, you know, and your friend across the table knows that, you know, your, let's say your husband has been cheating on you throughout the whole marriage. I, I just, I, I think there's a time, there's a place, there's professionals and you really have to trust whoever you're going with to confide in that they're going to really support you no matter what through whatever you may be experiencing. Item three. Well, we heard from The View. Now let's hear from The Talk. Where we will hear a couple of male commentators or at least one actor, Jerry O'Connell, talking about Bill Gates's divorce. 
Why? Like, what else? Like, now Bill Gates is going to have to go on dating apps. He's going to be swiping away, sending, like, shirtless selfies. What's up? God. What's up? You up? I mean, it's just like, look, I, I've been married now coming up on, believe me, I'm just as shocked as everyone else, 14 years. And, oh, I mean, look, I'm married, I'm married to a Scorpio. So, Yay. like, we are... We are like one drunken lunch away from like being like, that's it, I'm out, I'm out, I'm done, I'm finished with you. Yeah. But like, at this point, you know, we have like 12-year-old kids. We've been together this long, so have Bill and Melinda. Like, they obviously, there's something they love about each other. Also, this breakup with the money, I mean, you know, mm. my wife and I split up, we're splitting up her Beanie Babies and my <laughs> baseball card collection. This is going to be a foundation. I mean, could be worth a lot. Jerry, with some cynical thoughts on Bill Gates and <laughs> Melinda, what did you think about that ever? Yeah, look, I can't say I agree with really anything you said, but I want to take a moment to appreciate the thought of Bill Gates on a dating app posting a shirtless <laughs> selfie. I mean, look, I'm prepping for today's episode early this morning, and I'm going through the absolutely brilliant docket, Dave, that you have you know, prepared. And I'm starting my day with the image of Bill Gates <laughs> posting a selfie on, you know, yeah. some dating sites. So I, I could have really done it without, you know, that reference. But look, Jerry O'Connell, I don't think I agree with him. I mean, he seems to be suggesting that, you know, you get to a point in your life where you've raised kids. But look, he, he references his own marriage. His kid, I think he said, was 12 years old. So is that the moment yeah. in time you say, you know, look, my kid's 12. That's it for me. I might as well stay in a marriage no matter how happy I am or how miserable I am. And so I think, you know, we look at the rise in grade divorce over the past two years, three years due to the pandemic. We've had experts talk about it. I think people are living longer and people are looking for different things. And I also think, as we've talked about before, how we define marriage and the success of marriage has changed. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting something different, moving forward in a different direction. And the definition of a successful marriage is not really until death do us part. I mean, I think the whole concept has evolved. How we look at marriage has changed. How we define marriage has changed. And you can have a very successful marriage and you can still end up getting divorced and moving ahead to different things in your life. Yeah, I agree. I think um, Jerry O'Connell should have stuck to telling old stories about Jerry Maguire. I mean, maybe, maybe he was just going for a joke, but it's, that's kind of a silly exercise to try to, you know, second guess someone else's marriage and relationship and say, you know, well, you've been married for this long. You might as well just stick with it. You know, no, as we've talked about, the great divorces are a real thing and you deserve to be happy. There's no right time to get a divorce. The right time is when you decide. Right. And, I, and I'll tell you what, he, he references, you know, splitting up and, you know, a baseball card collection, his wife's Beanie Baby collection. I will tell you what, I know he minimizes it. That's all he has, which obviously we know is not the case. But I'll tell you what, when you value certain assets like baseball card collections or Beanie Baby collections, wine collections, sports card collections, all things that have been part of the work that I do in my practice, these are expensive and valuable collections. I mean, I've had baseball card collections worth a mind-blowing amount. I, I've never had a Beanie Baby collection value, but I'll love to see what, what that looks like. But he brings up a whole other layer of, of topics that you know we've talked about with evaluations and why divorce sometimes you know moves forward in a certain direction. But again, I, 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 I can't get out of my head the Bill Gates selfie image, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's going to stick in my mind yeah. 
for that, a lot longer than I would have liked. That is not what you want to be thinking about when you're having your morning oatmeal, for sure. Well, we are up to the part of the program where Evan gives his thoughts on the issues of the day. It's the Shine on Spotlight. The Shine on Spotlight. And special edition, we'll stick with the theme of the news clips for the, the Spotlight today. Here is a bit of a show from the Drew Barrymore show. And her sidekick, Ross Matthews, is going to talk about something in the news here that's interesting. Let's take a listen. Adele is writing an album about divorce and pain. Other people, they handle it differently. Some of them light their wedding dresses on fire. (laughs) I love this story so much. New York Post reports, a woman celebrated her divorce with a pyrotechnic photo shoot. She reportedly found out that her ex didn't just cheat on her once or twice no, cheated six times. So she stomped that dress, dragged that dress in the mud, doused it with wine, and then lit that ablaze. <laughs> yeah. She had herself a little... Well, okay. okay. I don't know if you've ever come across anything like this in your practice, Evan, but your thoughts on the wedding dress bonfire. <laughs> if we're being honest, look, yeah, no, I've come across in my practice more than once, a handful of times. And I'm going to say this, celebrate the moment the divorce is final. I think I've been on the other side of it where, for whatever reason, clients think it's okay to do things like that during the divorce. That's a no-no. Wait until the divorce is finalized and then have whatever bonfire you want to have. But look, I've seen it all and heard about it. Divorce parties, divorce bonfires, tossing in the wedding dress. Look, and even divorce bonfires, you can throw in the wedding dress and even some more things if you want. And yes, divorce party planners, they exist. It's a real thing. And everyone has a different way of channeling their experience. Adele, she wrote a song about it. Some people get a motorcycle, take a trip, get a tattoo, or treat themselves to something really nice, a new haircut, a new wardrobe. I say do it. Do what you need to do for yourself to move on in that moment. And I'm terrified of what I'm about to ask. But Dave. (laughs) I did not burn my wedding dress. Was it a motorcycle, a tattoo? I'm almost afraid to even ask. Was there anything, you know, for you that you did to celebrate, if that's even the right word, the finality of it all and the turning point for you where you made the decision to say, look, I'm moving forward? Well, you you mentioned tattoos. And in a matter of, <laughs> in a matter of speaking, you, you're, you're on, on the spot there. I had a tattoo on my inner arm, which was a microphone cord. You know, since I'm into podcasting, of course, I've got a microphone tattooed on my arm. And the cord spelled out my wife's name, Annie. And so after I got divorced, I had to decide, do I remove that? What do I do? Since we got married in Texas, I, I put a little emblem. I got tattooed a, the state of Texas with the letters TX, which meant two things. It meant Texas. But it also meant thanks. So it, it that it now reads on my arm. It reads, thanks, Annie. And so that, to me, was a way of putting a positive spin on it. She didn't necessarily like it, but, <laughs> but it, I told her it was it was supposed to be something nice. I wasn't one for, yeah, sure, I probably went out and celebrated with friends. I'm no angel. I'm no saint. But I wouldn't have thrown a divorce party or done anything sort of public because out of respect for my, my ex. But everybody does something different. So So now you know a little bit about the tattoo. Probably too much information. And Dave, if you're looking for a second tattoo on yep. that, uh, you know, on the other, second arm, I think the, the Shine On <laughs> podcast, I, I think would look good, you know, on that right arm of yours. Let's see. Shine On, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight letters. That's It's a little painful, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. Dave, if anybody <laughs> can take the pain, it's you. <laughs>
Our featured guest on today's episode of the Shine Up Podcast is LSU law professor Elizabeth Carter. We're going to talk with Professor Carter about all things prenuptial agreements, which is an area of focus for her. Professor Carter has written and spoken extensively on the topic of prenuptial agreements, and she was quoted in the recent July article in The New Yorker, prenups aren't just for rich people anymore. It's great to have you with us on today's episode. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. There's no one better to have on to talk about the topics of prenups. I know you've written extensively about it, so let's dive into the topic. And I want to start with the recent article from The New Yorker, prenups aren't just for rich people anymore, which is creating all sorts of buzz and conversation about prenuptial agreements since the article came out in early July. And that's a good and long overdue thing. In a nutshell, why are prenups no longer just for the wealthy? Well, I think they've always not been just for the wealthy, right? It's just people didn't realize the benefit, or not as many people realize the benefits to prenups if they weren't super wealthy. And so one of the reasons that I think they're getting more attention is people are entering marriage with greater amounts of debt, particularly student loan debt, than ever before. Why didn't people realize the benefits? Because people used to hear the word prenup and they used to think, well, this isn't romantic or I can't imagine starting a marriage and relationship with a contract. But did that sort of the negative tone of a prenup, did that really cloud people's perspectives on the potential benefits of having an agreement in place? It it absolutely has. And, and part of that negative sort of connotation comes from the media. It comes from popular culture. But a lot of it comes from the law itself. There are a lot of old court decisions out there that take this very negative view of prenups and make this assumption that anytime we have a prenup, it probably involves a wealthier spouse overreaching and trying to get the, the less wealthy, less sophisticated, usually female spouse to waive their rights. And that's not necessarily reality but that that has been the the trope and the stereotype for years and years i think people are finally starting to say there's no rule that says that has to be the case and elizabeth so many people i find in my practice i'm sure you see it and hear about it in louisiana where you reside but so many people struggle with how to bring up the conversation how to discuss the conversation the topic of a prenuptial agreement when to discuss it before you're engaged, once you're engaged. I mean, I have clients and I have horror stories, and as I'm sure you can imagine, where people bring this up a month before they're about to get married, and that creates all sorts of issues and and family dynamics. But what's the most delicate way to bring up the subject of a prenup with a partner? Well, now, of course, it's easy. You could say, hey, I read this great article in New Yorker, or (laughs) I listened to this great podcast, and we should talk about this, right? way to bring up that conversation. But in, in the absence of that, I think you need to bring it up early. You you definitely don't want to wait until the day of the wedding. There are tons of cases out there that are these worst case scenario horror stories. But what you want to do is say, hey, like if we are going to spend the rest of our life together, we need to talk about money, how we're going to manage money, whether we ought to talk to a lawyer about that. And and realize it, it may be a difficult and uncomfortable conversation, but it's not going to be more comfortable down the road. 
there's no more comfortable time to talk about it than when you are in love and contemplating, you know, this romance-filled future. Like, that's the time to talk about it. I love that. And I have to tell you, I, I've tried everything when my clients come in and, you know, from saying all the benefits, you know, of a prenuptial agreement that a prenup could be sort of the building block for having those tough conversations, as you mentioned, whether it's about money or jobs or expectations or children, having, if you can get through the discussion about a prenuptial agreement, it really sets the tone for having those real life conversations. But I have to tell you what, I'm now going to say, go check out the article in the New Yorker, listen to the podcast. You're making my job all that much easier. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, the easiest way now is to point to some <laughs> article. And and I know that in my case, like I have a lot of former students that ended up getting prenups because they've been in class and I've explained the student loan debt rule and it scares scares them to death. And and they say, oh gosh, like I have to do something different. <laughs> and I know we talked about, and you mentioned what this idea or this notion of a prenup used to be whether it was based on, you know, the movies or things people would hear in the media. So give us an example, real or hypothetical, of how a prenup can really be a win-win for both people involved. So if you don't have a prenup, you are assuming that your state legislators came up with the best set of default rules for you, okay? And and that's ridiculous because they... They do the best they can, but you can't have one set of rules that like suits all people best. Student loan debt is a a classic example. Let's say you go into the marriage. One of you has significant student loan debt. One of you does not. You're obviously going to pay off that student loan debt during the marriage using funds earned during the marriage. If you had a bunch of, you know, independent wealth, you wouldn't need the student loans to start with. Well, if the marriage ends, say by divorce, In a lot of states, that's going to give the spouse that didn't have student loan debt a reimbursement claim against the other spouse. So in effect, that makes your student loans go up by 50% just by getting married. And I think a lot of people intuitively say that seems unfair to me. Like I knew this person had the debt going into the marriage and, and I'm willing to sort of waive that. I'm enjoying a better standard of living because of their education and their higher income. And I'm willing to to waive that. Another example is say that your significant other can't pay their debts for whatever reason. It depends on the state, but in a lot of states, your wages can be garnished to satisfy the debts of your spouse. And you may say, look, we're in this marriage for life and we're in it for the two of us, but we're not necessarily in it together for each other's creditors. That's really interesting. And you mentioned something which I think is brilliant. And I don't think a lot of people realize when people think or say to themselves, you know what, I don't need a prenuptial agreement because in the event we get divorced in New York, you know, the domestic relations law will protect them or in your state, Louisiana, the law will protect them. That law may be so outdated or may not be really to their advantage, either party, the party who's looking for the prenuptial agreement or the party who, you know, might be asked to sign it. When anytime you can carve out an agreement and discuss it and negotiate and figure out how to structure things to put both people in a win-win scenario and in a position that, look, if something happened and, and people got divorced, how they both could separate and leave their marriage feeling as good about the situation as possible. So the state's laws don't always provide for the optimal solution just because certainly of the not. laws that are in place. Yeah, they, they certainly don't. And to give you a really simple example- sure. 
you know, in in Louisiana, Louisiana and California are both community property states. Louisiana says, okay, if I have separate property, any earnings from that separate property, say I invest it and it makes pays dividends or something like that, the earnings from my separate property by default are community in Louisiana. California has the exact opposite rule and says the earnings from my separate property are separate. So just by virtue of which state you're in, you're getting a totally different outcome with that particular asset. And, you know, I might like one of those rules. I might like the other. But if I'm getting married, I probably have no idea which one I'm signing on to. And there's no guarantee what state you're going to be in at death or divorce, right? So, you know, if you have an agreement, you can sort of pick the rules that apply ahead of time and have a uniform set of rules no matter what. Absolutely. I, I love that. And Elizabeth, let me ask you, if someone said to you, what would the perfect prenup process look like? How to really go about it the right way in the ideal scenario? How would you answer that? So this is something I talked about in my 2016 article, which ended up being pretty controversial. I, I tend to come at things from the estate planner perspective. And in in the 90s, estate planners really pushed for this model of joint representation in estate planning to say, look, spouses usually have aligned interests. I ought to be able to represent both spouses writing their wills and do it in a collaborative process. And even if you have separate attorneys for your prenup, my view is that collaborative process is the way to go. Generally, what I recommend is I sort of have a questionnaire that I send the clients ahead of time with open-ended questions that says, you know, here's some issues that come up. What are your thoughts and feelings about it? The two of you talk about this and come back and tell me and tell me what your follow-up questions are and what your concerns are. And then we put that into writing. So it ought to be a collaborative process, not a one party presents the other with a, with a written document that's already done and says, here, sign this. Right. I think if you start with no document in place, open-ended questions that, that help guide what the document looks like in the end, that's really the way to go. Are you seeing in Louisiana that push towards whether it's mediating prenups or participating in the collaborative process more in recent years? We, Louisiana is a little bit unique here because we have a, a different legal system and we've allowed prenuptial agreements since before we were a state. So whereas most states came to the party in the 1970s, we started this party in the 1700s. We, we have long had collaborative prenups. A lot of people in Louisiana will go see a single attorney or even just a notary to have their their documents done. You see a similar phenomenon in a lot of Europe and parts of Latin America. But, you know, Louisiana is not an island, although New Orleans is a little bit of an island. <laughs> it's rainy. We're sort of underwater today. But we are influenced by other states. So it, it goes back and forth there. You see some folks here doing a really collaborative process, some folks going a little bit differently. But you know, on the whole, I would say the the process in Louisiana tends to be collaborative. Also, we're a small state, so all the lawyers know each other. So, yeah, no, it's fascinating <laughs> because in New York, it's obviously very difficult to challenge a prenuptial agreement, and there's not you know a bright line rule. But you look at the, the fairness, you look at you know the process at the time the agreement was signed, you look at you know the the substantive terms. If in fact there's going to be divorce, but one of the things that would be looked at is did both sides 
have separate and independent counsel? Was there full financial disclosure? And we're seeing in the past few years an increase in people looking to the collaborative process and to mediation because, look, people are getting married. They're not getting divorced. So I always say to someone, look, you need to find an attorney on the other side who understands that's the goal. The goal is to get you to wedding day. You're not looking to separate and get divorced. Exactly. And, you know, I've always found it really interesting that that approach, Louisiana, like I said, we're unique on that. We're unique on our enforceability. We are, they are extremely enforceable in Louisiana. Many states look to independent representation. Some states essentially make it mandatory. A lot of states require those financial disclosures. Like you mentioned, those rules come from the divorce law. Right. Which in my mind, it's the absolute wrong lens to look at this from. Sure. Like if you want financial disclosure, do it. But but the legality of the prenup, in my mind, really shouldn't hinge on that. Now, if your prospective spouse is real hesitant about telling you about their assets and liabilities, like that is a red flag. Well, there might be other issues. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's a red flag. But but those rules come from the dissolution setting. They make a lot of sense in the dissolution setting, but they don't make as much sense in, in the setting where you're entering into it. And as you know, right, two lawyers doesn't double the cost. It's more like an exponential curve. Yep. No, it's, it's 100% <laughs> true. Elizabeth, you mentioned your article, which you published in 2016. I think you used the word, it was somewhat controversial. And, you know, at the time that, you know, you wrote the article and I read it, I thought it was fantastic. You know, it, it really went against this long and, and really outdated view that prenups are unfair, they're not romantic, they're sexist. What was the response that you received in 2016 when the article came out? And if you wrote the same article today, do you expect the response would be different? So it really depended on who the audience was. So when I was talking to practitioners, particularly divorce attorneys, they said, you're absolutely right. And they said, all of these rules are divorce oriented. Like you shouldn't be doing that going into the marriage. So that's a terrible idea. You're not litigating the marriage in advance. When I presented it in academic settings, it was completely different. (laughs) The academics said over and over again, I hear what you're saying. I hear your argument that women are on more equal footing with men at marriage than ever before, that, that these aren't relationships of inequality like they were in the past. But I just think couples with prenups are different than other couples that get married. And so they were convinced that still the substance and like the relationship of the couples was different. I would hope the response is different today because after that article, right, I'm not good at taking no for an answer. I am a lawyer. And so what I did afterwards was an empirical study where, because Louisiana is different, we record our prenuptial agreements. I actually read about 500 prenuptial agreements that were recorded in Louisiana over a four-year period, coded the data for what the agreements actually said, the ages of the parties, prior marital history, right? Things are traditional indicators of, of fairness and found that, again, like my initial theory was supported. Like these things were pretty even-handed and people, at least the best you can tell from that data, are on pretty equal footing when it comes to bargaining power in the relationship. So I would hope it's different today, but. I want to ask you about that research and your findings, because then I want to segue into millennials and and prenups. But when you looked at the recorded prenups at that time, 
in Louisiana. Did you notice anything? Did you find anything? Did you discover anything with respect to the age of the parties? Yeah. So one of the things, and I couldn't find ages for every sure. all 400, but I think I found ages for maybe two or 300 of them. And I, I looked at two things, the the ages of the parties generally and the ages with respect to each other, right? Are these May-December romances or which tends to be an indicator of there's some inequity in bargaining power, right? That's sure. your like old wealthy businessman marrying the trophy bride trope. And on the whole, the gap in ages was very small, right? On the whole, couples with prenups were, I think, maybe three years apart in age, which is about the same as the the average for all couples that get married. Now, on the whole, the couples that have prenups were older than couples without, but that's just an average, and it's because a lot of those were second marriages, right? And so that's going to push the age up. But a number of them, surprisingly, were first marriages. 50% were first marriages for at least one of the spouses. Really interesting. Going back to the New Yorker article, which references a lot of prenup professionals and discussion about prenups on TikTok and and social media, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing in terms of raising awareness, raising awareness, raising people's understanding that I can ask for this and it, it shouldn't be so stigmatized. And so I think that's really helpful On the flip side, it's like anything else. There's going to be a lot of misinformation out there about like what's in an agreement, but you know, that that's okay. I'd rather people have awareness and have interest and go learn more than just enter into marriage, assuming their state legislators did what was best for them. Does the percentage of millennials who are getting prenups today, does it surprise you or it's about time? I I would say it's long past time. I I think anyone that gets married should have a prenuptial agreement. No, I, I, anyone who's listened to the podcast and knows my thoughts and all the listeners have heard me say it before, I think it's so incredibly important for a whole host of reasons. And staying with the article in The New Yorker, one of the central characters was Sandy Webb, who was able to escape her deceased husband's hospital bills in large part due to a prenup. And obviously, prenups, they're important. They're a very good thing. But from the other side of it, should we be encouraging marriages where one spouse doesn't have to worry about the other spouse's problems? And shouldn't a marriage, could someone say a marriage should entail something of a burden for the one you love? I mean, so the question is, who's that burden for, right? They had been living, like in the article, they've been living together for years, happily. It's only society that sort of pressures you to marry. The only reason they married was, was marriage does still mean something to people. But why should she be left holding the bag for his creditors at the end of the day? And particularly his creditors of the healthcare system, which we know is such a dysfunctional system to start with. Like, should you be forced into poverty just because you chose to marry? I mean, that, that was the outcome she was looking at. Yep. And I, I think a lot of people, if they understood that that was their choice, they would say, well, forget it, right? It's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to ask you, the article talks about your own experience with the prenup and that you and your fiance at the time, who the article mentions was also a lawyer, the two of you drew up your own, your own agreement. Right, right. 
So and and yeah, we're actually I've, I've seen it all the way to them because we were actually as of last month divorced, but amicably so with no lawyers other other than us. So let me ask and, you that: looking back to when you went through the process of putting together a prenup and now separating and divorcing, is there anything you would have changed in the prenup process now that you have just gone through a divorce? Sure. There are probably some terms that I might have, you know, stipulated differently. In the end, it it wasn't an issue because I think the way that you deal with each other going into the prenup is very predictive of how you'll end in the relationship if, if it ends in divorce, right? It might end in death, which is what we had hoped when we got married. It's just not the way it worked out. But it was it was really pretty amicable going into it, and it was amicable particularly on the financial side coming out of it and and i'll say like we didn't even strictly abide by the terms of the prenup coming out of it because some things had changed but we were able to work out a a fair situation for us and honestly it it was easy well that's great and if and if you had to do it again would it would have you still done it yourself or would have you had either one attorney in Louisiana or two separate attorneys in the prenup process? Well, since we are both Louisiana attorneys, <laughs> what did, and, and, and I in particular work in that area, no. I, I wouldn't have paid <laughs> to farm it out. But <laughs> if not for that, I would absolutely hire an attorney and, and I've coerced most of my friends into having prenups when, when they get married. So let me ask you about that because I subscribe to that theory as well. I think prenups, as I mentioned, huge benefit for a whole host of reasons. But are there any factors that if a friend asked you about, you would advise against it for a particular reason? So I might advise against a particular prenup, but I would never advise against having a prenup. Your prenup, and I've actually seen this one with some estate planning clients who got married up in New York, and the New York lawyers had done the prenup in New York lawyer fashion. It was about 50 pages long. 50? I was going to say, well, you should add another 25 pages. Yeah, (laughs) it might have been longer. All it did was basically adopt the default Louisiana law, right? And so they had anticipated that they would be moving back to Louisiana. The documents... It took a lot of pages, but it essentially said, we like the rules of Louisiana, and that's what we want to apply. And so, you know, even something like that, I think, is advisable. There, there, I might say, don't sign this particular agreement. I might say, don't marry that person. But I wouldn't say don't have a prenup generally, because your prenup can just sort of say, we like this set of rules. Give us those. So let me ask you about that, because at least in New York, that people have an option to not sign a prenup and you also have an option not to get married. And so if someone tries to challenge a prenuptial agreement in New York under duress, saying they had no other option and they got married based on terms that they're now trying to challenge, they're going to lose because the courts in New York will say you did have an option. You had an option not to go ahead and get married. Does Louisiana have a similar approach and, oh, absolutely. You, and how would you advise someone who they might be in a position where they're being asked to sign a prenup, they try to negotiate it, and there really just isn't that much movement, and then they're faced with the choice, do they get married with a prenup, which is not particularly favorable depending on the state's laws, or or not? 
So, yeah, duress is, is a very, we, I think there may be two reported decisions, if that, involving duress in Louisiana. And I don't think either one was successful. So, for similar to New York, yeah. Yeah, like it, it's just, it's not going to happen. But, you know, if I would, I would say to someone, if, if someone's showing up on the eve of the wedding presenting you with a prenup, right, don't sign it. And, and people are going to feel pressured, right? They're going to say, everyone's coming into town. We've got to get married, yada, yada, yada. You don't, right? Remember that you don't. Don't get so caught up in that. And, you know, you might do what our our Louisiana gal, Britney Spears, did. Her marriage to, I believe it was Kevin Federline, there, and I, I could be wrong about the, the specifics of this, but if I recall, they hadn't worked out the terms of the prenup before they had the party planned. So they essentially had a document that said, this is not the real marriage, right? We're still working on the prenup. We're having a big party. We're having a ceremony, but this is not a legal marriage. We will do the legal marriage at a later date after we get the documents in place. Yeah, you know, and, and you hear things about that. You see things about that, situations you obviously want to avoid. But then again, it's Britney Spears. And I mean, there, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to her. <laughs> but you mentioned something that I think is really interesting because you're referring to, and you mentioned really the choice of law. And I've seen that during the pandemic where people have left New York City because of the pandemic, because of the increase in, you know, rental apartments and people have moved during the pandemic, whether it's to Connecticut, whether it's to suburbs or different states. And then you get into a situation, really what state governs in the event of, of a divorce, in the event of, you know, the jurisdiction. And I think it's incredibly important not only to, to specify in an agreement, if you know you're going to move, let's say from New York to Connecticut or New York to Louisiana, which state's laws are going to govern in the, in the event that there is a divorce? Like what's the plan in terms of where you're going to live? And these are questions that I ask my clients. And it's fascinating because if, if to me, it's incredibly important to work with, whether it's other professionals and a state planning attorney, because look, someone could live in New York today, 10 years from now due to a job or life circumstances, somebody can end up living in Louisiana. Right. And, you know, unfortunately, there's not a ton of guidance out there in the jurisprudence on choice of law provisions in prenuptial agreements. I think generally speaking, right, everyone I write has a choice of law provision. I'm a Louisiana attorney. I'm writing with a Louisiana thought in mind. I'm going to say this agreement, the terms in here, these are all made by reference to Louisiana law. I'm sure you're say the same thing with New York law, but individual states will have little quirks and little things that they will say, you know, this is a public policy in our state. You can't contract around it. We think this is a really important issue. And so I think that attorneys practicing in this area need to have some understanding of what the sort of range is among the states. Something as simple, I was just gave a talk on this about adultery provisions in prenuptial agreements. And are they enforceable? Are they not? That varies wildly from state to state, and it, it's a public policy issue. So sure, like, you can write it in there, but is it enforceable? Uh, in California, they're going to say absolutely not. Yeah, in New York, I, I would say the same thing. And I, I think, and, and again, I, I, I don't really encourage people to include those provisions. In part, <laughs> in part because it, the prenup takes on a whole nother layer, right? You start getting into conversations what defines an affair, right? You know, is it an emotional affair? Is it a physical affair? Is it 
and you start getting into the specifics and the layers and penalty clauses. I don't, I, I think it creates an absolute headache. It, it's, you know, there's a public policy question. I look to leave it out of, of, I completely agree. It's it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating topic for a lot of reasons. I completely agree from like the academic in me loves the topic, right? The attorney in me says, do not do that, right? <laughs> the whole point of this agreement is to cut down on exit costs and cut down on, yeah. on things you can litigate about a divorce because that's expensive. If you put this in here, you are inviting litigation. Well, you're going to, people are going to spend, I mean, an exorbitant amount of money litigating what's an affair. I, yeah. and, and it's, you know, that, whether someone cheated or not and how to prove it. And it's, and so uh, the yeah. cases are fascinating on that. Yep. But, but, you know, say someone really wants a provision like that, even if I write that agreement and I say, look, we have a choice of law provision. We are selecting a state's law that we know that sort of provision is enforceable. If you get divorced in a different state and you can't just pick which state you get divorced in, there's no like form selection clause sure. for divorce. For divorce, people try to put them in there, but I don't think they're enforceable. If you end up in a state like California, they're going to say, we don't care that this contract's governed by this. This is a public policy of our state. The courts will not entertain it, period. It's fascinating. Is there, and and I know you do a lot of research in Louisiana on prenups in general across the country. Is there any research that you're aware of in terms of the marriages where people have prenups and the percentage who get divorced versus marriages without prenups? No, I'm I'm hoping to be able to look at that maybe in the future, right? Because again, I think you might be able to pull that data from court pleadings. Although I'm still not sure how reliable it would be because I'm thinking, I don't think my own divorce documents even reference the prenup because it just wasn't necessary like the way the divorce worked so yeah you're like oh well there i am (laughs) (laughs) if i'm messing it up there are probably plenty of other people scrap the whole research right (laughs) yeah messing it up too but you know i i'm not aware of any research that looks at that has been an argument people have said you know if you have a prenup you're more likely to get divorced and there there is no data that tells us one way or another if that's accurate that's true i i I would take the position that although that research might be hard, the research that at least my opinion is if you have a prenup, the cost of your divorce will be a lot less than if you did not. Yeah, I, I would think that would be true. And, you know, some people with without prenups or with say bad prenups get trapped in the marriage. And, you know, divorce is not always the worst outcome. Sometimes people end up financially beholden to the other spouse. And, and feel trapped in the marriage and, and can't exit, right? And it may be an abusive relationship or, or whatever. Divorce is not necessarily the worst outcome in the world, right? All marriages are going to end. They're going to end at death or divorce. No, it's true. And, and you mentioned something that, you know, what I see in terms of, you know, prenups here in New York and is when, when there's a tiered or structured or step up, whether it's alimony or in New York, equitable distribution in Louisiana, I know, I, I know the laws are different. But different payouts, depending on the length of the marriage, sometimes, look, people stay in otherwise extremely unhealthy, you know, and toxic relationships and marriages because of the certain financial implications in the actual prenuptial agreement. Right. And, you know, that creates a really perverse incentive to have someone stuck in a marriage that they're like, well, I I don't want to be in this marriage, but it costs me too much to get out. 
And, and I think that's, that's a problem, you know, and, and that there's a lot of social science research out there showing that that sort of financial control is a real indicative predictor of, of abusive relationships. No, absolutely. And Elizabeth, you mentioned the word trap. And I, I want to ask you about waiting periods, which in, in New York is something we don't have. You can sign the agreement the night before, three days before, 10 days before, or six months before. And no one's going to legitimately challenge the prenuptial agreement based on that one factor and only that factor. But some states do have waiting periods, whether it's 20 days or 30 days. And what are your thoughts on those waiting periods? Good bad, problematic? So I, I would say I'm a two minds. Like the, as an attorney advising clients, right? I would say let's not sign this the day before the wedding. Of course, I totally sign on the day before the wedding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, also did it, you also did it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Do, 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 as, I, do as I say, not as I do, as I tell myself. So, you know, I always want people to have a little bit of, of time ahead of time. In part, that's because I know that some states really look down when they're signed close in time to it. But I don't think the states that have a mandatory waiting period, I don't think that rule accomplishes anything. And and the reason I say that, again, in looking at the, at every time you erect a legal barrier like that to entering into a prenup, you add to the stigma, right? You add a signal to the couple that this is something you shouldn't sign, right? You're suggesting to them this is bad. You're adding to the cost. And in in the, the second article that I did, the 2019 one, I was able to, for a lot of the agreements, approximate what the waiting period was between the date they signed and the date they got married. Because in Louisiana, it's pretty customary to recite the date of marriage in the document or the anticipated date of marriage. And so I coded that data and although the, the average was like a few weeks or months, there's a, a chart in there. And when you look at it, it's Hello. really striking. The vast majority of agreements were signed within a week of the wedding. You know what? It, it doesn't <laughs> surprise me. I, I, I had one signed, you know, a few weeks ago where the bride came, you know, the bride came in. She was crying. She, you know, just had her second dress fitting. I mean, it's a total, it's a total mess. And I say to people, look, start the process early. I mean, in my perfect world, you would start it before you even get engaged because what happens is when people get engaged the next few months, it's all pure joy and happiness and planning a wedding and a band and a venue and all that goes in. And you don't want to bring up the prenup when, when all of that's happening, life gets in the way, people get busy. And then two months out, you say to yourself, you know what, that prenup, it's probably a good idea to get it. And you're getting married in, in six to eight weeks. Not ideal. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the the states that have these mandatory waiting periods are sort of assuming, based on a handful of bad actors and a handful of cases, that lots of prenups are being sprung on people at the last minute. And when I, when I look at these numbers that came out in the article, I'm like, I just don't think that these many people sprung prenups on their spouses at the last minute. That's just not what happened. No. They talked about it for a while. They drug their feet. Talking to your lawyers, kind of like going to the dentist. It's not always. No, nobody, you know, nobody wants to call me. I don't take any offense. I, yeah, like it's not always top of your to-do list. Like I get it. And so I just don't think that the vast majority of these agreements were coercive. And yet some states established this rule that says we have a cutoff. And if you're seven days, 10 days from the marriage, we deem them coercive and unfair. And I think that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, no, I, 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 
think that's a great take. And I tend to agree with you. Elizabeth, a cynic might say that the rise in the number of prenups means that as a society, we're overall less trusting of others than we used to be. How would you classify about what that says about society? Well, A, you probably should be less trusting. (laughs) Marriage, particularly women, marriage was never really designed to offer women economic freedom. I mean, marriage was, you know, marriage has come from a patriarchal society. It was not designed to empower women, particularly financially. And, And your state legislators may have perpetuated some of those problems. The judges may have perpetuated some of those problems. Society might have perpetuated some of those problems. So, you know, you probably should be a little bit less trusting generally, you know, even but I, I don't know that as a society we're we're less trusting. I think people are just better educated, and more people are going into marriage. Uh, the average age of marriage is a little bit higher than it used to be. So more people are going into marriage after graduating college. Marriage is also increasingly becoming a marker of privilege and status. It tends to be college-educated people that get married more than than others, and that used to not be the case. And so I, I think it's people with more education and more money simply saying, I've worked hard for these things. I, I want to keep them. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point, the education. I think people are getting married later in life. And I think the other thing I would add to it is that people are living much longer. I mean, the life expectancy is, you know, substantially higher and longer than what it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. So, you know, people are now living until they're 80, 90, 100 years old, accumulating more assets, more income. And I think that also adds to it as well. Elizabeth, the article mentions Hello Prenup, which is a website. And I want to ask you about that website or other websites and technology and whether the prenup conversation, the prenup process documentation should be left to automation and a site like that. So I've briefly looked at that website. I've not heard of that one until the article came out. So I can't, usually whenever one of these comes out, I, I make a fake account and go, <laughs> right? and go sort of stuff it out and see what sort of documents it spits out, just out of curiosity. And and so I've not been through there, so I don't know how theirs works, but I've seen the results of several of the others and some of the others in my mind, just weren't worth the paper they were written on. Sometimes all they did was confirm the default laws. Sometimes they they were really based on the Uniform Act, which fine, but that didn't tell me anything in Louisiana. It, sure. we, we're not a Uniform Premarital Agreement Act state. Many states are not. You know, I, I like the idea that technology can make law more accessible and affordable, but I just don't think that the technology is quite there yet that if it gives you a questionnaire that helps you talk through tough questions great but there there is simply nothing that replaces a good attorney and from what i've seen again i've not seen that website they may have better technology maybe what they're doing is great but from what i've seen from from other service providers these documents are uh creating a lot of work for litigators down the road which, well, it's yeah, and, because and people, people, it, it's yeah. creating jobs. <laughs> and, and people are looking in, in, I think if people are looking to the automation or technology to replace that conversation between spouses, between partners, it's a mistake. And if they're looking to replace attorneys, that's also a mistake because really all it's doing 
is creating legal holes and complications down the road in the event that one person challenges it. And I know you mentioned that earlier, look, when people are negotiating prenups, they're doing it at presumably the happiest time of their life, the high of the highs. When you get divorced, things are a little bit different. And so that, you know, all, all the things and thoughts about challenges, you know, people are thinking about that when you're separating, not when you're putting it together in the first place. Right. And I think there's spaces where technology works really great hand in hand with law. Like I've, I've seen some of the apps that are getting used for child custody conversation, some of the, the apps you can use to help do the calculations on child support, that sort of thing, right? That's a really good use of technology and the law. But on, on the prenup side, it's the same. We have the same situation with wills on, on sort of this do your own will online situation. That, that is just not the place to try and save the money. It's going to cost you more money down the road. Totally agree. And I've seen that firsthand. Elizabeth, as we finish up with the podcast, last question for you. For someone who's listening who's on the fence about the prenup, they've been asked to sign it, and, and they just had a conversation with their soon-to-be spouse, and they're upset, they're confused, it came as a total shock. What would you say to that person to help them get through the process of negotiating the prenup, both in terms of the emotional part of it and also the financial discussion? Again, you know, don't don't get your feelings hurt because again, often the prenup is there to protect both of you. And and the prenup may even say, look, we like these rules. We want to divide things 50-50. There is no rule that says this agreement has to be unfair or one-sided. And it it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be unfair or one-sided. So now if it is, don't sign it, right? <laughs> If it is, go go talk to go talk to a lawyer, understand what it is you're signing, get an agreement that you both think is fair, but 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 set yourself apart from that stigma. I think of it very much like having a will. You can die without a will and say, Oh well, the government'll figure it out, or you can say, This is who I want to get things. Elizabeth, this was absolutely fantastic. I encourage everybody to read your 2016 paper, the 2019 paper in the research. Check out the latest article in The New Yorker. Absolutely brilliant. And look, it's, it's really fueling the conversation surrounding prenuptial agreements. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. This was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Episode 45. It's in the books. LSU law professor Elizabeth Carter. She was great. What an absolutely incredible perspective on prenups. And to get her take on why prenups should absolutely be considered if you're getting married, producer Dave, I'm going to say it because you didn't mention it. One of the comments that came into the flooded Shine On podcast inbox is that people want more producer Dave. Oh, this week on episode 45, they got it. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, 45 episodes to down, many more to come and more Dave, whether you like it or not. But thank you, Evan. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you. And you can listen to all and you can listen to the podcast and all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and Pod 617, and wherever else you get your podcast. Follow the podcast and subscribe. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.